Hello, and welcome to the Nashville Sounding Board, the new podcast dedicated to discussing social and political issues in the Nashville community. I'm your host, Benjamin Eagles. Today, I'm joined by Visha Wilson-Hawkins. Visha is a former Metro Nashville Public School student, parent, and staffer. You can find more of Visha's thoughts on volumeandlightnashville.org. We'll do a few rapid-fire questions to get to know Visha and then dive into a discussion on education in Nashville. So first, where did you grow up and what part of Nashville do you live in now? So I grew up in what is considered Northeast Nashville around the Trendy Lane, White Creek Pike area, and I now live in Hermitage, Tennessee. Okay. And what book has had the biggest impact on your life? Wow. Um, probably um, A Man's uh, Search for Meaning, Victor Frankl, um, his, uh, speaking about his time in, you know, in concentration camps. And I've read that about three times. Uh, it's, it's dark, but uh, he was brilliant. Um, and so I just kind of used some of those, some of his pointers, uh, some of his, you know, quotes uh, to kind of guide the, the way I think and live. What is the best concert you've been to in Nashville? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am not a crowd person, so mm-hmm. I don't do a lot of concerts, but I went to Jay-Z in November. There you go. Which was so awesome. And um, and maybe even more awesome, like we were, we had tickets for the, like the third level. You know, we were up there with God. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the end of the night, we, we, we threw just through a series of unfortunate events we ended up on the floor. Wow! In front of Jay Z, so it was it was amazing. My husband and I, um, we are very uh, middle aged, and we loved it. <laughs> it sounds like a special night. It was great. What's the first news source that you check in the morning? Um, I probably wake up twice in the middle of the night, and I check Twitter. Twitter is just my source, right? And so I check our local news and then I also check and look at for certain thought leaders in the education world, whether I agree with them or not. Since you grew up in Nashville, can you describe for us your experience in the city and your experiences with the school system uh, quickly as a student, parent, and also staffer? So I grew up, I guess, at the time, I would have been considered at risk. I do not like that term, but um, I said I was, you know, I grew up in poverty. Um, I was a terrible student, but had great promise. And so there were teachers along the way that saw that. Uh, I didn't see that. I didn't care to see it. But um, so I'm thankful for those um, those little heroes throughout my life that kind of guided, that kind of kept me from just completely failing. <laughs> Uh, outright failing. And so I went to uh, Maplewood my freshman year, which was not a great experience. And then Hunter's Lane opened. And so we went to Hunter's Lane. It was integrated. So we had kids from Maplewood and kids from DuPont High School, which closed. And DuPont High School was in, you know, very white, old hickory. And so they put us together. Uh, and Ma- and Madison kids. I'm, not, I'm sorry, not DuPont, Madison. Ma- Madison High School closed. Um, so they put us together. And so like for three weeks, we had race riots. And this was in the mid 80s, uh, which was was crazy for us at the time. So, you know, I guess my education experience was was kind of different. But what I noticed, what I realized was the importance of a parent or a caring adult being involved in the life of children. And so I realized that my senior year this is when my mom kind of got herself together. 
And, you know, she was very in tune, well, you know, and very concerned about what was going on. And it really made a difference in my life. And, you know, so I've always just kind of wanted to do something about that, right? I always wanted to support families and give them a platform and train and develop and that kind of thing. So I've always just kind of wanted to do that because of that experience. Um, as a staffer, um, I love Metro schools, always have, always will. Um, as a parent, my kids went to choice schools. They went to magnet schools. They went to open enrollment schools. And so all for different reasons, but it was reasons that, you know, that was best for each child. And so I've always been a proponent for choice. Just kind of organically ended up on this road where, you know, I'm trying to advocate for parents um, for their right to choose (laughs) or their right to choice, right? And their right to great choices. Whatever the parent, if they choose that school and they love that school, then that's a great school for them. You know, choosing a school is the first best investment you can make in your child's education. In your mind, what has the impact of Nashville's growth been on the residents of Nashville? Oh, wow. It's not in my mind. Like, I have written about that incessantly. The growth of Nashville, all the development has had a terrible effect on our schools and on our most vulnerable populations. The growth has squeezed out a certain population of people, right? And that is our most vulnerable, our, our poor you know, with the lack of affordable housing, the rise in homelessness, you know, in 2016, you know, we were the sixth in the nation in homelessness, you know, over five years, I think our rents doubled, we went like from 700 to like 1450 for rent. Um, and if you're making $15 an hour, you know, how can you do that? Right. So I think the growth, the development has been a terrible effect on our city's most vulnerable. But what people fail to acknowledge is what that also does to our students and to our schools. I remember hearing from a principal um, from Buena Vista, and I remember her saying about three years ago that the students, the, the group of students she had in her school in August was almost completely different from the group of students that she had in May. And so when you think about that mobility, that's called student mobility. And then you also have students. um, When I was working for the district, I remember seeing we had a group of students throughout the district who had been to seven or eight schools in one school year. There are different reasons, but primarily it's parents trying to find, you know, they probably can't pay rent. So they move to a different place. I mean, think about what that does to test scores. Do you feel like the priorities of new Nashville are in conflict with the priorities of old Nashville? So I can't say what the priorities of old Nashville uh, is, but I do believe that the people who are considered a part of the new Nashville came here because of the old Nashville. Old Nashville is quickly vanishing. So we just have a different set of priorities. And I, I, I just happen to believe that the direction that the city is going in doesn't include or doesn't value public education, you know, or the kids that are, you know, in the public education system or, um, or poor people. Nashville Public Radio has a great podcast series going on about the redevelopment of the Casey homes. And it just so happens that part of that redevelopment is a new charter school in Casey. And I feel like maybe there's no better example of new Nashville and old Nashville. And what do you think of that charter school and the timing of Casey getting a charter school now? So I 
there was a timeline I thought that was a great idea. And I'm not I'm I'm not on that bad and wagging right now. <laughs> okay. Um you know, again, you know, while I, I do appreciate charters and, you know, but I, I'm I'm more concerned about families having choice and having great choices. And and the families that I tend to talk to and the ones that I tend to advocate for are generally families that would be considered marginalized, right? And so um so that so I have trust issues with certain things. <laughs> Um, and so I, I hope that the charter school reaches out, you know, to the kids who would be considered marginalized. Getting into the stats on education, according to the TN Rady data from October 2017, only 25% of Nashville elementary and middle school students are on grade level in reading and math. Can you talk about reading achievement within the city and what are we to make of those stats? Those October stats kept me up the entire month of October. For the life of me, I couldn't understand why am I so concerned about, you know, our kids not reading and no one else seems to be. Because when you dig further into those st- those stats, I mean, you what you see is that 86% of poor kids in third through eighth grade, they are not reading on grade level. 86%? 86% of kids in poverty in third through eighth grades. And so when I think about that, I think about the third and fourth graders who have an opportunity to get that, you know, and, and the fifth graders and the sixth graders. But I think once I, I look at the eighth graders and I think they're going to go into high school where there is less opportunity to read and get their reading on grade level. Right. And it's just going to get incrementally worse as they matriculate through the through high school. And then, you know, here we here we have, you know, a graduate who may be reading on a fifth or sixth grade level, maybe. And so those things give me great heartburn. You know, someone told me, actually it was Chris Stewart at a, at a conference last year in November. He was like, you're writing about these stats. Um, he said, don't you realize that's a prophecy? And it literally stopped me in my tracks and tears immediately came to my eyes because what, I mean, really, what do we know? What do we know about those stats? What do we know about an eighth grader who cannot read on grade level? In terms of outcomes for that In, in terms of life outcomes. Right. <laughs> and I don't even want to say it because it's just so awful to me. But, you know, we pass them through the system, unable to read. And I just think that, and I say unable to read because I think that's the most basic, found, the most basic skill any child should get once they leave our system, right? It's just the most basic and so when we're not providing that for our children, I mean, we are literally setting them up for a lifetime of failure. So that prophecy, I mean, what we know is that, you know, agitates the generational poverty. You know, it agitates more, you know, the hyper incarceration that we see, you know, unwanted pregnancy. Like, I mean, there's all <laughs> there's any number of things. Right. That's why the whole reading thing has uh, has taken my attention and has taken up a lot of my time that I'm not getting paid for, by the way. I spent all of October, well, half of October, all of November, December, and all of January meeting people, reading articles, trying to figure out, you know, what is this thing that we can do? You know, I think about the, the school district has hundreds of organizations delivering services to students 
delivering tutoring services, reading skill services, coaching, all kinds of services. And we, we still have 86% of poor kids unable to read. I've talked to a lot of teachers and a lot of teachers point to families not being engaged as they should. And so I struggle with that a little bit. Um, I, I, you know, obviously parents are the first teacher, but it just seems to me there should be some basic things that happen within a school day and within a school year. So when you were growing up as a student, you were bused, correct, to a school outside of your zone yes. school? Mm-hmm. And so for listeners who may not know, the term busing refers to assigning and transporting students to schools in a way that tries to overcome the effects of residential segregation. So can you talk about that experience and what your views are on busing today as it relates to school choice and segregation? I think it changes by generation. So I remember my grandmother and many people in her generation feeling like integration was evil, right? Like it broke up the family. It broke up the village, the black family, you know, the black communities. When I was bused, I was under the impression that that was the thing to do. Put us with white people, with rich people, rich white people, or, you know, well, uh, resourced, (laughs) well-resourced white people and we will learn better. We will have better things and we will have better materials and we will have better teachers and and we will be the better. We will be better for it. Today's parents seem to be doing something different, right? I mean, today's parents, you know, there are all kinds of studies out there where um, both black and white parents say, yes, diversity is important, but we're not willing to drive or, <laughs> you know, make you know, extraneous efforts to make that happen. Like we want a good school. And if it's, if it's all white or if it's all black, well, whatever. Um, And so the AP study that came out a couple months ago about, you know, charter schools or choice creating more segregation. I mean, I thought that was the most ridiculous study ever because neighborhoods affect segregation. And in choice schools, let's say like charter schools, Parents are actually making those choices. And so if they have, if they are choosing to go to a school that is 85% black or 85% white, well, first of all, we don't talk about those schools that are majority white. We don't say anything negative about those schools. We only talk about the schools that are majority black or majority children of color. I mean, so what are we saying to those parents that they don't know what they're talking about, that their choices are bad? I mean, those, they made the choices. So I think it changes by generation. You know, I thought, you know, for me, I mean, diversity was important to me. It's still important to me. My kids, I think, benefited. Well, I think, I mean, I think we all benefit from being, you know, with different people. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm shocked as, as anybody else to see that the younger black parents are cool with going to schools that are majority black, because that's not what I was taught to believe. (laughs) And I I just find it interesting that my grandmother has a lot in common (laughs) with today's Mm. school-age parents, right? I mean, Mm. it's just, it kind of blows my mind. Along those lines, do you see meaningful integration in our school system as feasible uh, just because of how zoned schools draw from neighborhoods that are typically quite segregated? And do you consider that a goal for metro schools? It was once a goal for metro schools. I remember um, a plan in place being put out there when Dr. Register was the director. 
And so there was a plan to try to get less majority minority schools. I don't know if that plan is still in, in effect. I've not heard anything about it or I actually looked for it last year and I didn't see anything. Uh, I don't know how feasible it is unless we blow up neighborhoods, not blow up neighborhoods, but unless we unless we change the demographics of our neighborhoods. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I believe I mean, our neighborhoods affect the complexion of our schools. And so and our neighborhoods in Nashville are very segregated. So unless, you know, we, you know, have some people in Green Hills who decide, hey, I think I'm going to live in 37207 or, you know, unless that happens, which I don't think it will ever happen. um, I don't think I I don't know how feasible it is to make our schools true centers of integration. Do you see the proposed mass transit plan as a way of better facilitating school choice and busing by providing transportation options to students who want to go to a different school? Uh, I wish I believed that. You know, the only part of the transit plan that I like is the ramping up of bus services. But in the past couple, three years, you know, we, we now have school students have the opportunity to ride the city bus for free, which is huge. Um, but Still within that, right? There are some some issues with our bus system, and so I love the ramping up of bus services um, with the transit plan. And so I do think that will be a, a a great asset to to parents in in the future. Uh, I am concerned about the transit plan as a whole. I mean, it's just expensive, and obviously, from the lens that I that I look from is. The, the marginalized populations who are already paying 50% in, t- you know, for those who rent, they're paying 50% of their salary in rent. And then we're going to add additional taxes on their backs um, so that a small segment of, pop- of, of the population can benefit from the train. Uh, and that's just my very elementary understanding of, of all the pieces and parts of that plan. I don't, you know, I'm Spent a little time trying to read about it, but uh, don't know about it in full. But I, but I do understand the money part, <laughs> um, and I do understand what it's like to be poor and not um, and can't afford another tax. And so I kind of see the trans this transit fight. So the pro transit people are ticked off at the billionaires, but what I see is you know a fight between billionaires and millionaires. And then there's, you know, the rest of us who we got to deal with the carnage that's left on the battlefield when it's all over. Currently, it's my understanding that there's a significant teacher shortage within the school system here, as well as nationally. How do you think we can solve that issue on a local level? You know, I think there's a, a, a few things, but one of the things is I think teacher pay is a huge thing, right? I think kids leave high school realizing, knowing that you know, I don't want to deal with all my friends, you know, <laughs> you know, all these kids and not get paid anything. I mean, I think I think teachers salary is huge, but I also think we don't value teachers enough. You know, and the I, pay is representative of that. You're absolutely right. I used to think about how teachers actually they teach everybody, whether you become a Supreme Court judge or no matter what you become in life, you were taught by a teacher. And I'm always shocked that teachers don't get the pay or respect they deserve. 
Going back to the stats now, per the Tennessee Department of Education cusp list, Nashville has 21 schools in the lowest 5% of all schools in the state, and there are an additional 20 schools here that fall between the bottom 5% and 10% in the last school year. What's your reaction? So I'm, I'm outraged. That's not just, you know, we're not talking about schools. We're talking about kids who are, mm. are not getting what they need. How can you not be outraged, right? I mean, I know we have other issues going on in our city, but these issues started before our current, you know, m- more immediate issues. So there was, so there was that story. And then you see the story about the rocket ship, which closed, which is terrible for those babies. Now, can you explain what rocket ship is? Oh, I'm sorry. So rocket ship is a charter school here in Nashville. Um, and there, there's, I think there's some in D, there's one in DC and maybe one in somewhere in California. And so we have a couple of three schools here, I think, in in Nashville. And so this particular school was in the in the achievement school district, which is very controversial, seen as just being a, a major failure, just completely ineffective. And and the achievement school district, for those who don't know, is operated by the state when they take over schools that underperform. Is that correct? Absolutely, that is correct. And so uh, this particular school was in the Achievement School District under the watchful eye of the state or was a part of part of the state's school district. And after one, only one semester, it's closing. So that is terrible for families. That is even worse for students and the teachers that now have to find a job. And, and it's horrible. But at the same time, here we have a story of more schools that's heading that way, Right. And we hear nothing about it. And so when you start hearing, you know, people chime in on this rocket ship story, but not chime in on the 20 schools in the bottom 5% and the 21 schools in the 5 to 10%, you have to wonder really about, you know, people's priorities. It troubles me because there would be no need for ASD if we would take care of these schools and these babies on the front end. And it's the same with charter schools. Charter schools, I mean, they're vendors, right? They mm-hmm. provide, they're providing a service that we need. If we didn't need it, they probably wouldn't be here. And so I'm not seeing it in Nashville, but I have seen it in other states where, you know, charter advocates or ed reformers are just, you know, pro-charter, pro-charter, no matter what, no matter if they're failing, no matter if they're embezzling <laughs> uh, or whatever. Um, and then we also see that on the public side where, I mean, pro-public schoolers, in this case, you know, it seems jubilant almost that the school is closing. You know, they have a reason to say, aha, I told you, right? I got you. That bothers me. And that lets me know that it's not about kids. It is not about kids, right? It is about who, whose point is proven, you know, whose political ideology is right at the time. And it's not about kids, so you reacted very strongly to people using the term pro-public schools, and I imagine that's because you're pro-good school, whether it be a public or a charter. Absolutely. How can public schools institute best practices from charter schools? Uh, for instance, two ideas based on talking to friends who are teachers. One, oh, it's great that it rang. One is no cell phones in the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> and... Two, hire teacher coaches to help develop and support teachers, especially younger teachers. So is it possible? Why can't public schools adopt these and other best practices from charters? 
So that is a great question. And I um, wrote a little while ago um, about Nashville Classical, Charlie Freeman and Nashville Classical. And I've, I've, I've also written a, a little bit about Purpose Prep and Valor. And these are schools who are educating groups of kids and somehow managing to not have achievement gaps between different races, between socioeconomic. They are the holy grail. They are doing it. And Charlie Freeman, one of his quotes, he says, what we're doing here in reading at Nashville Classical is something that can be instituted anywhere in this district. That is a very profound statement because charter schools were created, but, you know, they are, they're, they're supposed to be these vessels of innovation and they are supposed to share best practices with the district schools. You know, some of the things I, I see that they're doing can be instituted in, in traditional schools. And you mentioned providing teacher coaches. And I remember Josh Rogan wrote something about that and how important it is for new teachers to have someone to follow them and model for them and, you know, be there for them during that first year. And so that is something that our, it seems that our, our district could absolutely institute for new teachers. And I mean, I can, can you imagine what that would do? Because not only do we have an issue with getting people, teachers in. But retention. We, we have a problem with retention. Right. And mm-hmm. so teacher coaches, man, I can only imagine what that would do for a better retention for our, for our teachers. So I, I, it just seems to be absolutely feasible or absolutely worth the investment <laughs> in the long run. Nashville Organized for Action and Hope, or NOAA, has recently called attention to the fact that African-Americans make up 40 percent of students within the district, but they make up 75 percent of those expelled or suspended. I know Noah has brought it up in context of the school-to-prison pipeline. So here we, again, have another prophecy. We have kids who are not reading at grade level. So we have kids in poverty and kids of color who are not reading at grade level. Then we have, um, so let's say we take some of those same kids and we expel them at the first sight of almost anything. There are so many things that contribute to that school-to-prison pipeline. Literacy is one of them, I think. And then definitely the over-suspension of kids of color, Black males in particular. And so I appreciate Noah taking on this issue because it, it definitely has to, it needs a spotlight. And then I appreciate Metro, Metro Schools, you know, doing this restorative practice. They've been doing this for about three years now, the restorative practice initiative. And hopefully, hopefully things will turn around in that respect. I mean, that's a, a teacher preparation thing, right? It's things that we need to teach in college, you know, to be sensitive to kids who are coming from distressed situations. Um, and so I don't think that's enough of that that happens in traditional teacher programs. Recently, the Core Civic CEO, and Core Civic, for those of you who don't know, is the new name for Corrections Corporation of America, private prison company. This CoreCivic CEO was appointed to the board of the Nashville Public Education Foundation. What was your reaction to hearing that news? My, my initial reaction uh, was anger. I mean, I understand how this thing, how the public-private partnership works. I, I get it, right? I mean, these public, you know, the Nashville Public Education Foundation is a great organization that does great things for our school system. And, you know, they need high visibility people. They need people who can offer money. <laughs> I get that. Um, but I think it's a, a t- I think it was um, kind of off color <laughs> to do that. 
So let's talk about the prophecy. Let's talk about the kids who are unable to read today. Course Civic. 86% of 86% of third to eighth graders not able to read. From impoverished background. Right. So let's think about those eighth graders today or eighth graders in 16 and 17 when they took that test. So they're ninth graders today. So in in three years, they're going to graduate. Some of those kids may graduate unable to read, which is going to take them out of jobs, take them away, you know, keep them away from jobs, which creates desperate situations, which creates, you know, causes people to do, make bad, bad decisions. And in my opinion, Core Civic counts on that. Core Civic will benefit from us not teaching our kids to read or not teaching them math. They are going to get richer off of that. So I think that is, um, I do not like that decision. So people listening to this podcast who don't have kids or not a teacher and aren't yet thinking about the next school board election, what can someone do to engage and to help out in this field of education? Some people just like to donate money. There are any number of organizations that need funding. Some of the organizations like Pencil Foundation, I mean, they take, you can volunteer for them. You could, They take donations for the school district. You know, there are programs that, um, you know, I'm, I'm all about literacy right now. So I, I participate in, or, um, in a book club called Project Lit Community that's out of Maplewood High School. Uh, the teacher, the English teacher there is Jared Amato. And he created this community that has become a movement. Um, he read an article in the Atlantic about book deserts. And so his, he and his students decided to create, put these book bins in book deserts around Nashville. And these book bins include books that are relevant to the students. You know, they're books that kids can see themselves in, which is amazing to me. Uh, I love being a part of this. I was just at the book club yesterday, yesterday morning. And uh, we, the book was Dear Martin by Nick Stone. And Nick Stone was actually there. It was amazing. It was amazing. Wow. Um, I'm also a reader for Bookham. And so they have this program called Reading is Fundamental. And so you go into the schools, you read to your classroom five times a year, and you take your class books each time you go. Those Both of those programs are very important to me because I was a kid who could not uh, afford books, you know, and I couldn't, didn't have transportation to go get a book. So, um, so I, I support those two programs and I encourage others to do the same. That's great. Any other closing thoughts? So Ben, I really appreciate you inviting me to do this. I do not like to talk. Um, I, I don't mind just writing it, but you know, I have a problem getting my thoughts out of from my head, through my mouth, so, but I do appreciate you inviting me to do this because education, I mean, I, I'm extremely passionate about it, um, so I, I don't mind talking education. Well, thanks so much for coming on the Nashville Sounding Board, and thanks to everyone out there for listening. As a quick note, if you're enjoying the Nashville Sounding Board, please leave a review or a rating on the Apple Podcasts app or your app of choice.